It is uh, just great to be together and worship our God. And uh, great to see some new faces here, some old faces. Uh, I won't uh, identify any of those, but uh, it is just really great to be here. I'd like us to uh, continue today our study through conversions in the book of Acts. And uh, really, one of the best ways to understand doctrine is to see how it gets put into practice. And uh, that's really why the book of Acts is it's so full and so rich for us. Because we see so many different circumstances and, uh, and different uh, things going on where people are hearing the gospel about Jesus and they're responding. And so uh, this is conversion. And conversion itself, there's, a, there's, there's process going on in conversion. Uh, just like a plant, a seed must be planted, and then, you know, then there's a lot of time before you actually have the plant in its finished uh, condition. Uh, we all know uh, where human life comes from, and uh, once an egg is fertilized, there's nine long months, isn't there? And uh, then there's a birth. And, uh, you know, I... That birth, I will never know your pain, girls. Uh, sorry about that. But I just want to say on behalf of all the brothers, thank you. Uh, thank you for what you're willing to go through. And uh, to our mothers and all who've gone before us. But, uh, you know, conversion is something that begins by the Word of God being preached. The good news about Jesus being heard. And uh, it's just an amazing thing to look at through the Scriptures. Uh, we have in Acts chapter 2 the longest sermon about Jesus. The longest gospel sermon is right there at the beginning of the book of Acts. And you can check that out. We talked about that, that a few weeks ago. But uh, really it was an amazing day. Because Peter stood up and he began to speak about this man Jesus in altogether unusual terms. Because he was making the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, but at the same time he was saying Jesus was the suffering servant. And that there was some kind of connection between the suffering of Jesus and even his death and our salvation. Now the Jews had been practicing animal sacrifices for 1400 years. But human sacrifice was never part of the program. In fact, any kind of human sacrifice was always considered blasphemous and against God. And yet Peter was standing up and saying, God has taken human form, He sent His Son, and His Son died on a cross. His Son was sacrificed. And then the question was really put out, do you accept that? Do you accept responsibility for what God has done? And see, that's how animal sacrifice worked. An innocent animal was taken, the life was offered, and it was offered instead of the person. But it didn't do anything really. An animal dying doesn't take away my sin. But it made a point. It was, it was, it was teaching something. That there, there was something innocent would had, had to perish, had to give up its life for forgiveness to really happen. And of course, it was all looking forward to Jesus. And after the sacrifice of Jesus, no more animals needed to be sacrificed. It was accomplished. God accomplished His plan. You know, Peter explained that God confirmed the ministry of Jesus through miraculous signs. And uh, that's going to play into a lot of what we talk about today as well. And so Peter, you know, Peter finished preaching this message. And the people listening, they looked at him and they said, What must we do? Their hearts were cut. They heard this message 
about God sending His Son to die on a cross for them, and they were moved to respond. And Peter answered them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom, all whom our Lord our God will call. And so this was the basis of the story of Acts. Because the story of Acts is the story of this message going out, people believing and responding, and forming into churches. And so we see the spread of Christianity throughout the first, uh, in, in the first century. Our last lesson that I, that I did, we looked at Acts chapter 8. Philip met an Ethiopian eunuch. And a eunuch is, from one point of view, a person without a future. Because if you're a eunuch, you can't have any children. And the eunuch was relating to this, this talk of Jesus, about Jesus, in Isaiah. That he would have no descendants. And yet there was still some glory there. And so the eunuch was curious, what does this mean? And Philip went on to teach him about the gospel. And we don't have the message that Philip shared. It just said he began with that passage. But the result of the message was this. When they came to some water, the eunuch said, Hey, here's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? So Peter had preached. I mean, Philip had preached the same message that Peter had preached. And Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he was baptized. And then the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Now let's go now to Acts 8. And we're going to pick up our the conversion that we're going to study today. And Actually, it's, there's sort of this city in Samaria. And then also, there's this story about Simon the sorcerer. So look here in Acts chapter 8. And... Uh, Acts 7 was about the martyrdom of Stephen. This was the first disciple of Jesus to give their life because of their faith. And so, Acts 8, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. That was at Stephen's stoning. So we pick it up. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the, the, the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many, many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Jesus had commanded his disciples in Acts chapter 1, first to preach in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then go to the ends of the world. And so we see actually this plan being, being implemented. But what's interesting is a little persecution had to come along to sort of get it going. It seems like everyone was kind of happy to stay in Jerusalem. Do you ever feel that way? You ever happy with the church just as it is? You know, we can become that way quite easily. It's so nice just having who we have here. Uh, it's so familiar. And yet there's a mission for us. There's a mission to go out into the world and spread the good news about Jesus. It's great that we've gathered here. It's great that a number of us gather here consistently. That's great. But see, there's a world out there that needs this very message. 
And so the church was scattered, and they began to share the good news. And Philip, who was one of the seven, this was someone especially appointed to do some task with the Jerusalem church, he also went and he began to proclaim Christ in Samaria. And he was teaching the same message Peter had taught. We know that. Philip also performed miraculous signs by driving out demons and healing the sick, and the city was full of great joy. How exciting was that? This guy comes into town proclaiming the message of Jesus, that message that Jesus had risen from the dead, that Jesus had died for your sins, that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. It was exciting. And they were seeing miracles done. Philip had the ability to perform miracles. Look a little further in verse 9. That says, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in that city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. You know, before Philip came to town, there was a counterfeit religion. There was this sorcerer who was, he was performing signs, and he felt pretty good about himself. And uh, everyone did too. They said, this guy's great. He's connected to the great power, whatever that is. And so, you know, he was, he was amazing, the people. But Philip came preaching about God. He came preaching about the God who loved us enough to send his son to die for us. What an amazing picture. This wasn't just a magic show. And yes, there were some miracles being done, but they're pretty helpful miracles. Driving out demons and healing the sick, that's not a sideshow. That was changing the lives of people and the lives of the people around them. And so it was impressive what was going on. They believed and they were baptized. We see a little more here, just that the same message was being preached. But this guy Simon, he took an interest. And it's interesting, we're, we're kind of looking, he followed Philip around everywhere. You know, I, I think he, it says he came to faith, he also believed, he was also baptized. But Simon still was carrying a little bit of Simon around in him. He now had Jesus in him, but there was now Simon still in him. And, that, and this is the sad part. Because this part of him, this part, this part wanting attention, this part that was enamored with miracles, this was actually going to pose some problems in his Christian life. Look a little further. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. You know, last week I'd said there was a reason I was going to look at the eunuch first. There was a reason I was going to look at the 
the story in, or two weeks ago, in the story about in Acts 8, there's a reason I said I'd look at that one first. And that is, it really comes out here. Because if you just look at this, it's a little quizzical. It says that they believed. It says they were baptized. But they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. But actually, as we look at this, it isn't that they hadn't received the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is invisible. Jesus said to come into His kingdom, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit. The wind blows where it wants to. It's something invisible. Many of us have witnessed people being baptized. And the only thing we actually see is a person getting wet. I mean, that's what we see. The only physical change happening is someone getting wet. But we believe, because of the promise of Acts 2.38, the Spirit of God comes in and makes His dwelling in that person. They become a temple of God. Something invisible takes place. But see, what he's talking about here isn't the invisible. It wasn't that, that the baptism that Philip was doing was ineffective. But you know, they'd heard about what happened in, uh, uh, in Jerusalem. They'd heard about the Holy Spirit being poured out. They heard about the signs and wonders being performed. And here's Philip doing it too. But nobody else is. Philip's the only one. And see, we'll see as we go through the conversion stories in Acts, even Peter didn't understand exactly what the mature church was going to look like when everything was finished. But the church, the apostles who began preaching the the first gospel about the church, these apostles, they performed signs and wonders to prove that what they were saying was true. We'd read that about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. It says, God accredited Jesus through the signs and wonders. How could Jesus do those miracles unless God was with him? That's what Nicodemus said. And so these first century apostles went out preaching the message and God empowered them to perform signs and wonders because they were preaching about a miracle. Believe me, I just saw someone raised from the dead. If somebody came in here and said, I just witnessed a resurrection, would you believe them? Now, if they said, I just witnessed a resurrection, and then they kind of looked at Cameron, and they went like this, and Cameron rose up in the air, and they moved him, and then put him out in the back of the room, you kind of go, hey, maybe they really did see something. You know, if, if there was a miracle performed, you'd start to question, well, maybe that was true. Because there's definitely some power going on here. See, in the first century, they went out to preach the gospel, and it was new to people's ears. They weren't able to open up the gospels as we have them today and say, hey, look, this is what was written. This is what the eyewitnesses said. And so God empowered them with miraculous abilities. And the apostles had a very special gift. They could lay their hands on people and give them gifts. Pretty interesting. Look over in Hebrews chapter 2. See, the day of Pentecost wasn't a normal day in the church when it came to what miraculously took place. If if it was, we would hear the sound of rushing wind every day. We would see the evidence of fiery tongues every day. But see, that happened only on the day of Pentecost. It was the beginning. 
It was a visible sign of something invisible. The Spirit of God had been poured out, and so there were signs. Look what it says here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 4. It says, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Look what he says here. He says, This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us. The Hebrew writer wasn't himself an eyewitness. It was confirmed to him by one of the apostles. Or someone who had been miraculously gifted by the apostles. And so he said, well, this is amazing. This gospel was confirmed by miracles. God accredited Jesus through signs and wonders and miracles, and He did the same. But see, in the first century, there was a transition taking place. They'd had the Old Testament. No one had added to it for 400 years. The Old Testament's canon was set. But then, inspired of God, prophets, apostles began to write down new words. And we call it the New Testament. And just within one generation, the New Testament was finished. And we know it's true. Look what it says in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Throughout the Gospel of John, he records various miracles that Jesus did. And each time he refers to a miracle, he makes this comment. And because of the miracle, people put their faith in Jesus. That's exactly the same thing Luke recorded in Acts chapter 2. But look what John says at the end of his gospel when he's talking about why he recorded these things. It says in John 20 verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, le- by believing, you may have life in His name. John wrote about miracles, and he said every time Jesus did one, that people put their faith in Him. And there's one comment in John chapter, cha- chapter 10 where it says, uh, the people were amazed that, that John the Baptist had spoken the truth but never performed a miracle. See, miracles for the Jews meant someone's telling the truth. Miracles were a sign from God. But what he says right here is, these things have been written, in other words, he's recorded the miracles, so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by by believing you might have life in His name. The only miracle we need to believe is the Word of God itself. And isn't that true? How many people have seen the Word of God change people's hearts? The Word of God changes people. The Word of God, it's like a seed. And it unleashes a power, a knowledge in people. It's amazing. And so when we go out and share our faith, we don't perform miracles. We open up the Scriptures. 
And when people say, how do I know that's true? We go, well, that's what's written right here. We show them the written testimony. The Scripture is our miracle of affirmation. We might say, well, Andy, people might not believe the Scriptures. I hate to tell you, but many people didn't believe the miracles. They saw the miracles, some of them even experienced them, but still didn't surrender their lives to God. Thanks for the miracle, God. That was very good. And then went on their way. See, even seeing a miracle doesn't guarantee, it doesn't take away your decision, but it gives you a reason. The Scripture gives us the reason to believe that Jesus is exactly who He says He is. The Son of God who came and offered His life for us. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll pick this up in verse 18. How many people would like to see a miracle? I mean, I don't know about you, but do you, do you even like watching like ma- magic shows and that kind of stuff? Is it not intriguing, interesting? Now, let me tell you, it's all fake. It's all you know, sleight of hand, but whatever. Um, but it's interesting when you see something you can't explain. It's intriguing. Look what it says here in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. It says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. When you believe the gospel, when you repent and are baptized, there's nothing miraculous going on visually. But there's definitely something miraculously going on inside. God is transforming. And when we are baptized in faith, we receive His Holy Spirit in us. It's a gift. Nothing else can put that in there. It's a promise to us. It's amazing. You know, it's interesting, back about a hundred years ago, in the general Christianity, um, something emerged called the Pentecostal movement. And if you go back 120, 30 years, it didn't exist. It was right at the turn of the last century that it came into being. And it came into being because people wanted a visual sign, an experience, something tangible physically. That they were in fact pleasing to God. That they had in fact done the right thing. And I don't know what they thought they were praying for. But there's a thing. When the the New Testament talks about speaking in languages, it's always human languages. It was miraculous. I could communicate with somebody in their native... Just imagine if I began to speak native Ibu right now. There's probably a few speakers here. 
That would be impressive, right? Or Yoruba. You know? Or even with a Jamaican accent that might impress some of you. But, you know, here I am with my Canadian accent. Actually, a good Brummie accent would be good too. Okay, there you go. But, but my point is this. This sign of tongues, this wasn't what is called ecstatic utterance, which is practiced in many world religions and existed long before the day of Pentecost, where people in a trance-like state, just their sort of their minds continue to work and they're able to produce sounds, but these sounds have no particular meaning and they don't know what they're saying either. And there is a psychological effect. It's actually quite releasing. It, it, it makes you feel a little lighter, as does other forms of meditation and trance-like experience. But the fact is, that's not speaking in tongues, according to the Scripture. When now someone spoke in tongues, they were speaking a language they'd never studied before. That's pretty amazing. And that's what they'd heard on the day of Pentecost. But see, if you start seeking for signs, visible signs... The bad news is you might just find one. And then you become more dependent on this experience than opening up the real sign, which is God's Word, and understanding what the truth is. This is our evidence. This is our affirmation of what truth is. Now there's an additional truth as well. There's fruits of the Spirit in our lives that also show God's presence in us. But I'll tell you, that's an imperfect demonstration in our lives. The Scripture is perfect. It is perfect in how it sets forth God's truth. Let's read a little further. What happened to this man, Simon? Let's pick this up in Acts 8, verse 18. Acts 8, verse 18. It says... When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now when you first hear that, you think, Well, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, he just wants to do what they're doing. Peter's answer, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. To be honest, Simon's answer doesn't really tell us that he got it. Simon doesn't sound fully repentant here. And that's sad. Because we already read that Simon believed and he was baptized. We know that he's received forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Simon is still Simon too. It's not just Jesus living in Simon. Simon's there. And Simon's got to make a choice every day. Do I die to myself and let Jesus live? Do I walk with the Spirit that Jesus put in me? Or do I do what Simon wants to do? What good is that new life if I don't surrender to it? And the word that he uses here is repent. 
Peter looks at this baptized disciple and he says, Repent of this wickedness and pray. Because your heart's not right before God. It's important for us to see. Yes, we need to repent before we're baptized, but repentance continues. Repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is a lifestyle of denying ourselves and following Christ. You can't follow Christ without denying yourself. That's how it works. Jesus couldn't follow the Father without denying Himself. Our flesh does not want what the Spirit wants. I appreciate so much what Samuel was sharing. I appreciate her boldness and just her, you know, the specificness of what she said. But until you completely surrender to God, you haven't repented. Now, we're imperfect, and this is where grace is wonderful. Because our repentance, our salvation isn't based on our perfect repentance. But ongoing repentance is part of the Christian life. It's how we live. We've received God's grace when we've been baptized. But that doesn't mean that God has no moral judgment anymore about what's right or wrong. It simply means there's no condemnation. There's still a right and a wrong, but there's no condemnation. Judgment without condemnation. You know, there's also going to be in our Christian lives discipline. Anyone ever felt the hand of God disciplining them? Okay, there's discipline. But this isn't punishment. This isn't giving us what we deserve. It's giving us difficulty for our good. To train us and to help us become what God wants us to be. It's transformative. And then also, there is guilt. Because guilt is what happens when your conscience tells you you did something wrong. Your conscience, you can't turn that off. That was wrong. Or wasn't. But see, what do you do about guilt? In grace, there's guilt without regret. Guilt should make you feel bad. Guilt should make you run back to Jesus. Guilt, guilt just means you should turn to Jesus. I mean, don't say, I don't have any guilt. You just go, I need Jesus. Don't focus on your guilt. Focus on Jesus. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 13. Paul wrote some pretty challenging things to the Corinthians. And he says in verse 8, Even though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so you are not harmed in any way by us. Interesting. These are Christians. They become sorrowful as God intended. What does that mean? They'd done something wrong. Paul was correcting them. And they understood it. Goes on, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You know, think about Peter and Judas. After the night of Jesus' betrayal, Judas couldn't forgive himself. 
Jesus couldn't deal with what he did. He was just full of worldly sorrow. He went out and hung himself. Peter, on the other hand, went out and cried. And he was sorry. And he's like, I didn't, that's not what I wanted to do. God help me. You know, that was his attitude. It was godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. And look what he says. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. Repentance always brings refreshing. And so Paul wrote them something challenging. Because they weren't treating this brother correctly. And in the first letter, they were making a mistake there. In both cases, there was a brother that was in sin and they weren't confronting him. Well, then they confronted him and then they weren't loving him back. And so they, were, they got challenged in letter 1 and letter 2. Look what it says over in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. In the welcome, I spoke about coming into the light. And see, that's, that's where God is calling us as disciples of Jesus. He's calling us to live in the light. There's repentance in the light. Because in the light, you see yourself and you see God's will for yourself. And so there's change. There's opportunity. And there's a power to change through His Spirit. Look what it says in 1 John verse five, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, This is the message we've heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. You know, what's it mean to be in the light? It just means to be real. Samia shared a testimony from the light. That was a testimony of someone who'd come into the light and is staying in the light. She's not afraid to talk about what's been wrong in her life, what, what, what wasn't working, where she, was, where she was sinning, where she'd gone against God. She wasn't afraid to talk about that. Why? Because she's in the light. And she can talk about that without regret. Because repentance is how she responded to godly sorrow. It didn't bring death, it brought life. And so God's will was worked. You know, I like to finish each of these sermons with a little story from the Russian churches. And for you, those visiting with us, my wife and I had a chance to work, uh, uh, start a church in Moscow, Russia back in 1991, and then spend the next eight years working with churches in that part of the world. And this is a very interesting story. In the September of uh, 1995, we decided to start our arts, media, and sports ministry. 
And uh, in many of our bigger churches, they have a certain region or sector of the church, usually a downtown region or something, devoted to sort of arts and media and sports because many of those people follow a different schedule. They're working when the rest of us are, you know, at home and vice versa. It's just a, it's a very different kind of world. And so that's just one of the ways to take care of our brothers and sisters. But in 1995, we decided to start this AMS and it was interesting, we had a prayer that we prayed. That in the first year of the AMS ministry, we would convert the AMS person who would actually lead that ministry. So we put that very special prayer before God. Now that was just our will. We, I, I mean, we, we wanted that. I can never, you know, you don't know what God's will is. We're seeking His will. But in early November, uh, we decided we'd start this in December of 1995. In early November, I went to one of the regions, not one I normally went to, and I noticed at the back of the hall, two men sitting, and they looked kind of strange. They were were separated from everybody. They were wearing big, long coats, and they were sitting like this, uh, kind of slumping in the back seats. And uh, I kind of thought, that's interesting, you know, because the, the, the hall wasn't full, so they were just completely by themselves, and they're kind of talking to each other, you know, like this. It's kind of like, what's going on? But then I also noticed disciples in the church kept looking, especially girls, kept looking back, and then they were talking, and they were looking back, and they were talking, and, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. So, uh, anyways, the service began, and when we had our fellowship break, I, I went to talk to him. And I, I introduced myself, and the first guy said to me, My name's Velodia. I was baptized in the church in St. Petersburg. Now, I've never seen Velodia before. We're in Moscow. That's 500 miles away. Okay, great. Great to meet you, Velodia. And this is my friend, uh, Christian. I met him shopping. And so uh, I stuck up my hand to this other guy, and, and he goes, Hi, I'm Christian Ray. And I said, Hi, I'm Andy Fleming. And uh, he goes... No, I'm, I'm Christian Ray. And I said, no. Uh, well, yeah, okay. I'm Andy Fleming. <laughs> and, and he kind of, one more time, he goes, he, he goes, I'm Christian Ray. <laughs> Great, nice to meet you, Christian. I, you know, I, I didn't know who he was. I just smiled. I, I shook his hand. And uh, let me show you who Christian Ray is. Let's go to the next clip. Okay, there's, if you take the arrow up, there's a movie. I push that. The sound's in, right? Okay, that's Christian Ray. It turns out, Christian Ray is the most famous teen idol in Russia. Turns out that his song called Our Generation was used by Boris Yeltsin as his campaign song. He was jetting around the former Soviet Union uh, with, and singing for crowds of 30,000 young people. He's sitting at the back of our service, 
with his brother Velodia from St. Petersburg. Now, I, I, I didn't know who he was. But you know the song that he wrote? This was the, the, the main line. Our generation were a movement of new energy, a new current, a sign of freedom. Well, it's interesting. Uh, despite the success, and Christian only being 25 years old, his personal life was a mess. Tammy and I took him home for dinner. We started to you know, hang out with him. We started to get to know him. And he had no interest at that moment of becoming a Christian. The truth was, he wasn't impressed at all by our service. I, and he was very blunt with me. The guy's a performer. He's like, man, it was so unorganized there. And you, you, know, you should have had this. And where's the band? And you know, you're like, okay, well, sorry. But, you know, we're just simple people. We came together to worship God, okay? But what was interesting is, he came, came to our home. And uh, Tammy came in, she sat at the table, we were all sharing. Britton came in, sat in my lap, gave me a hug. She would have been six years old at the time. You know, she's talking to me really sweetly and everything. And then she runs off to play. And uh, then Tammy left the room. And he looked over at me and he goes, How did you get this? How did you get what I just saw? How is that possible? And I said, you know, it's all about God. This is all a gift from God. You know what had happened to him? His girlfriend, Masha, they'd been together 14 months. She got pregnant in the second month. They'd, she'd just given birth. She moved out, taking his first child, and only child at that point, uh, taking her away from him. She moved in. She went from Christian Ray, the top pop star, to Zhenya Kafelnikov, who she would later marry, the number one tennis player in the world. Okay, she moved out from Christian, went over to him. She got what she wanted. She was happy, etc. Uh, there's still kind of a connection going. Uh, Tammy was actually able to meet with her, study the Bible. She was not open. And, and it was kind of like, you know, why does Christian want you guys to talk to me? You know, I don't get it, etc., etc. You know, after four weeks of building a friendship... Christian agreed to study the Bible. He, he wouldn't open the Bible at first. He was afraid. But after about four weeks, he's like, okay, okay, I'll study. And uh, in two weeks, he repented and was baptized. It was amazing just to see. But what, what was funny was Velodia. Velodia, I, I invited Velodia to our house. He was there the first time. Didn't want to come the second time. Something was kind of strange with him. And I couldn't really get a clear picture of what was going on from the church in St. Petersburg. Who was this Velodia? Uh, he knew some people. He dropped some names. But didn't really know who he was. But things got really weird because at Christian's baptism, Velodia had disappeared. He, he actually came. He found out about the baptism. And at Christian's baptism, right before Christian got baptized, Velodia walked over to me and whispered in my ear, you won this one, but it's not over. And I'm like... What are you talking about? Well, anyways, I, I'm like, what are you talking about? And then Christian said to me, you know, I don't think I ever told you where I met Velodia. I, I only met him a couple of days before I went to church the first time. I don't really know him either, but I met him in an occult store. I was looking at, at crystal balls and certain herbs for making, you know... Like I, he, I was looking at this incantation book and, and that's when I met Velodia. I said, that's when you met a Christian, Velodia. And he goes, oh yeah, Velodia told me that the elite in your church practice a little 
black stuff on the side, a little black magic on the side. And he invited me to do a few things, but I told him I just didn't have time. But I'm watching him right now, and he goes, something's wrong, something's going on. And he, and he asked me not to tell you this, because I would tell, I would share it with, with Christian when the time was right. When it was, we, we look into Velodia, Velodia is a practicing warlock. He's already got, we found out, two women in the church performing rituals with him. We're talking, I don't want to go there, okay? We are, we are talking, and, and he got converted in St. Petersburg, it's true. But he told them he was dying of cancer. And actually lived with brothers, he had no place to live, but somehow had money for this drugs, which he said was for his cancer pain, but he was actually also a heroin addict. So do you understand? This was a pretty dark guy. And uh, when we confronted Velodia, the truth is we never saw him again, unfortunately. I would have loved to have actually really presented the gospel to him. But uh, the strangest thing maybe in the story is this. Christian wouldn't have come to church if anyone else had invited him. But Velodia brought him. What can you say? Okay. You know, Christian's real name is Ruslan Flores. His father's Chilean and his mother is Russian. They were, le- they were energetic, I won't say leaders, but they were energetic members of the Communist Party. And he had come to Russia to study from Chile and actually gone back to Chile and tried to ferment a little communist revolution. That, that was what he was doing. So that, that's Christian's uh, background. Christian chose the name Christian as a stage name because it has power, which we don't disagree with. <laughs> and then he called himself Christian Ray as sort of this beam of, uh, of power. Okay. But here's what happened. In the next few months, Christian baptized his mother, his sister, his costume designer, his cousin, his grandmother. I mean, it, it just kept going. By January 1998, just two years later, Christian was still writing and playing music, but now as a secondary interest because he began to work full-time in the ministry and was preaching almost every Sunday. This is a letter that he wrote for me to share with the churches in America in 1998 when I went to raise some mission funds. Okay, this is what it says. It's a little small up there. Said from Moscow, March 1998. Dear brothers and sisters, my name is Christian Ray. I want to share a little about my life, how it was before and how it is now. I believed there is a God and had great dreams for my life. I sought God in Eastern philosophy, meditation, occultism, etc. I had tremendous success in my career and my life seemed to be going great and I thought my way of living was the right way. But as my career got more and more successful, I forgot that I once thought I could find God and my life became only about money, success and women. At a certain point, I realized that I was alone and unhappy. Nothing motivated me and there was no purpose in my life. All my philosophical constructions failed. I didn't see a way out. God, on the other hand, had a great plan. I met some people who had the patience and love to show me the Bible, and God opened my eyes, and I was baptized December 23, 1995. Since then, my mother, sister, cousin, grandmother, and some friends got baptized into Christ. It didn't stop there because my friends' friends and their friends are being baptized in the city of Moscow today. I know you are my brothers and sisters. I know how much you've sacrificed for the Moscow church. I can now dedicate all my money, heart, and strength, mind, to saving people like you did before me. I do believe that way we will evangelize this world. I love you with all my heart. Thank you. 
That is a guy who was trying to practice occult things and had all the fame the world could give you, but was empty on the inside and was looking for something more. You know, um, by 1999, the AMS ministry had grown to over 400 members. And Christian was leading it. But look at the next slide. That's TV Guide in Russia. That's the national TV Guide. It's probably, probably every, every week when it goes out, there's like 40 million copies of this printed and handed out. Like every household is getting one. TV Guide, 14 April 1999. This is what the tagline says, I am a fully persuaded and active Christian. Christian was not afraid to put it up there. And you know, you, you know what happened to his career, don't you? There's no way you can stay at the top and say what he was saying and testify to what he was saying. You know, the fans started to move away. I mean, everything got kind of fickle. Uh, he's a talented guy. He moved into produ- production, etc., and has done a lot of things with the church. But you know, he took a stand because the fame was gotten through satanic power, not through God's power. But what he has is more precious than that. He's got an inheritance in heaven. Not long after this TV guide, Christian was appointed an evangelist. In September 1999, he married Debbie. He went to an arts media conference in Los Angeles in 1998, and he met an MTV uh, Video music video producer named Debbie Christian the church they started Skype dating and uh, met up a couple of times and then were married uh, in 2002 another amazing thing happened Masha who of course could follow Christian's career knew what was going on uh, she had married Kafelnikov he heard about everything she contacted Tammy and asked if they could study the Bible and this, this, because she was following Kafelnikov all around the world, I can't even remember how many different people studied with her. I mean, like she studied in Asia, she studied in Europe, she studied in America. I mean, wherever she was, somebody, we, we had this team. <laughs> At the end, uh, she, she was baptized. And then, the, another amazing thing happened. She agreed to give Christian joint custody of their daughter, Diana. Christian and Debbie continued to serve in Moscow until 2003. Then they led the Kiev church for a year. And then they came to America because Debbie's health, uh, she doesn't do well in the cold. Living in Russia and Ukraine just wasn't the right place for her. Uh, They moved back to America and he began to work with Hope Worldwide. And they lived on the East Coast. Next picture. This is just how wonderful the kingdom is. They, they went to the same ministry. My parents lived uh, for the last 10 or 15 years. They spent about two months a year down in Florida. And the region of the ICOC uh, Florida church they went to is the same region where uh, Christian and Debbie were members. And so they used to meet for dinner all the time. This is the, I didn't take this picture. Christian sent me this picture. They were just having uh, some fellowship after church together. Um, so while working with Hope Worldwide... Now listen to this. The guy who, when I was studying the Bible with Christian, the, the, his tech, that was back in the day of pagers. Remember pagers, right? His pager would go off about every 15 minutes with some girl offering him sex. This is the world he lived in. This, listen, listen to what Christian Ray, with God's power and strength, did. 
While working for Hope Worldwide, Christian developed a $3.7 million educational program that taught young people abstinence. Okay, now, is that repentance? Is that a change of how you live? And that program still, it it actually spread around the world. It was used for some years in the States. It was used in Singapore by the government. It's still being used, as far as I understand, in Malaysia. You know, those kind of things have to keep up with the trends of society. But it, it was an act of use by a number of governments. In 2007, Christian began to work part-time with the AMS in Los Angeles. He moved over to the uh, Los Angeles church. And he also began producing music vid- videos for Russian artists who are trying to get into the American mar- market. But while in L.A., Christian's daughter Diana came to live with them, and she was baptized on the 14th of November, 2010. And she is a faithful disciple of Jesus. In 2012, Christian and Debbie moved to Austin with their kids, and for the past year, he's been leading the city ministry. Since being, with, being in Austin, Christian had the opportunity to consult with the NASA Space Grant Consortium in the area of social media awareness and presented a proposal before the board of directors made it of PhD rocket scientists and astrophysicists. <laughs> what can you do when God has a plan for your life? And so, as, the, as our worship team comes up and takes their place, I want to close with a final clip, Cam. This is Christian just leading a song. You'll find that thing. Leading a song in the, the Austin church.
Please stand and we'll have a final song. Thank you so much, Andy, for that. Mm.